Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had been sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their masters about everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancel all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jail to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The second pet the second passage it can be found on page one four one six, still from the book of Matthew, um, chapter twenty six. Verse 26 to 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many of the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thanks, Fuiling. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful and kind. Uh, so we pray that um, yeah, our convictions about what you are like might change the way in which we act. Amen. All right, can I ask you please to take out the leaflet that you were given as you came in? If you didn't get one, you might like to pick one up from the doors because inside you'll see there's a reasonably detailed outline. A couple of other Bible passages printed there today, a few quotes from things that will be helpful 
You'll note at the very end of this talk I'm going to finish by giving us just a few um, minutes on our own in quiet time to reflect before we race on to the next thing. Well, as you know, we're making our way through this series on the Lord's Prayer in the lead up to Christmas, each week a different line, and you can see all of them printed there on the left-hand side at the top of the handout. Uh, week one, our Father in Heaven, with the big idea that our picture of God determines how we pray. Uh, week two, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, the big idea that we pray for our Father's concerns before we pray for our situation. Uh, weeks three through five are looking at these uh, three different requests for our situation. Last week, give us today our daily bread. But this week, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I want to say that uh, this week is going to be hard and confronting because this is the only request which is not just a request of God, it's something that requires action on our behalf. That is, it's about something that we must do. In many ways, that feels like it sort of defeats the purpose of prayer. The whole point of prayer is that you realise you can't do something, so you call on God. And in fact, this prayer begins with what God has done, with the promise of His amazing forgiveness... But this prayer goes on to raise some uncomfortable questions. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Does this mean that this prayer has strings attached? And what if I do not forgive others, will God still forgive me? Well, the big idea for today's talk, again, printed on the top left of your handout, uh, the big idea, the way that God treats us must shape the way that we treat others. The way that God treats us must shape the way that we treat others. You often hear me talking about this and I talk about how the vertical always shapes the horizontal, the vertical, our relationship with God, that always shapes the way we treat others. That's the horizontal, those around us. Sometimes we see that expressed positively. We love others because God first loved us. And sometimes it's expressed in a really challenging and confronting way, like today, we are to forgive others because God forgives us. That's nothing new to uh, this particular part of the Bible. We looked at this in Ephesians chapter 4. It's printed there on your handout. This is that series we did throughout all of term 3. Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so, in uh, Matthew 6, verse 12, this is the line from the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, in case you're wondering when it talks about debt, Jesus makes it clear he's talking about sin, in fact, from verse 14, which is immediately afterwards, again, printed on your handout. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Jesus really ups the ante at this point. And so to Matthew 18 and the first reading that we heard where Jesus tells that powerful, evocative and quite frankly unforgettable story, the parable of the unmerciful servant. I don't need to retell the story because the gist is pretty straightforward. In response to Peter's question, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And I, I take it at that point, Peter's thinking, surely that's... I mean, I don't know, I don't think I've ever forgiven someone seven times because I probably haven't let them offend against me seven times before I've walked away. But in answer to the question, Jesus' reply is 70 times seven. And to draw the contrast, he talks about the servant who's forgiven a debt of 10,000 bags of gold 
who will not forgive the debt of a fellow servant of a hundred silver coins. It's meant to illustrate how God's treatment of us always shapes the way in which we treat others. And as you hear the parable read, it's so utterly appalling, you cannot believe what you're hearing, apart from the fact that all of us know we have a tendency to do the same. So let me try and tease out three uncomfortable questions that this line of the Lord's Prayer raises for us. They're each printed there on your handout. Have a look with me. Firstly, does this prayer have strings attached? Does this prayer have strings attached? Is God's offer of forgiveness of us conditional on us forgiving others? Well, you'll see there that I've listed on your handout on the left-hand side two truths, twin truths, uh, not just from the parable, but from a broader theological perspective. Firstly, this is not suggesting salvation by works. This is not suggesting salvation by works. I say that because in the parable, in the story that Jesus tells, the king forgives the servant first, well before we see the servant's response to others. The king forgives the servants first, well before we see the servant's response to others. That is, God's grace, mercy and kindness is prior and primary. We're being told that God always makes the first move when it comes to our salvation. That's not just from the parable. You see that more broadly. Again, I picked passages from Ephesians that we looked at earlier in the year. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 on your handout. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And equally in Ephesians 2, verse 4, again on your handout. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Uh, it's pretty clear from the image in Ephesians 2, uh, if we're dead in our transgressions, well, dead people cannot help themselves, but thankfully God makes the first move. He is the one who makes us alive in Christ. And so when we come to this line in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, it cannot be suggesting that we are saved by our works. And yet the second truth, the twin truth that goes alongside it, there on your handout, when God forgives us, it always changes our attitude towards others. When God forgives us, it always changes our attitude towards others. And that leads then to the big idea for today's talk, which I've already mentioned, the way God treats us always shapes the way we treat others. The way God treats us always shapes the way we treat others. This, I think, is the unavoidable conclusion, the implication of the parable. The stark comparison between being forgiven a debt of 10,000 bags of gold and failing to forgive others who owe you just a few silver coins. It's saying, once you admit how we have treated God and how He has still forgiven us, the inevitable consequence is that a Christian will earnestly desire to forgive others. Now, as you know, uh, throughout this series, um, Bernie, can you bring me that book that I left down there? Throughout this series, I've been recommending books for you to read. I often do this to you, um, you know, things that you'll find helpful and useful. Um, I don't know about you, I tend to buy books, stick them on the shelf, and promise that I'll get to them one day. So, 
So that makes you feel better. I'm exactly the same. This is one of those books called Unpacking Forgiveness. I bought this years ago, but I figured I should read it in the, re- in the lead into this particular talk. It's called Unforgiven, Unpacking Forgiveness, Biblical Answers for Complex Questions and Deep Wounds. Uh, and I thought it was terrific. There's a quote there for you on your handout. If you're a Christian, always remember this. Whatever someone has done to offend you pales in comparison to what you have done to offend a holy God. Seems to me that the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, it really should be called, uh, and wait for this, this is catchy, I made this up this week, it really should be called the parable of the extravagantly merciful and unbelievably over-the-top king who still forgives. Because that's the main idea of it, isn't it? I want to say that I get really nervous when I hear people say things like, I could never forgive them for what they've done to me. Without ever downplaying someone's suffering, what Matthew's Gospel teaches us is that our sin against God must put our hurt into practice, into perspective, sorry. Our sin against God must put our hurt into perspective. To the extent that if you swear nothing could make me forgive them, It questions whether you have genuinely asked for God's forgiveness for yourself. I think the warning in the parable of the unmerciful servant is that eventually he loses everything. And so, in reflecting on Matthew chapter 6 and verses 14 to 15 um, in this book, Chris Brawns, um, he draws the implication, um, now be warned, this has got to sound harsh, look at what he says. If you're someone who says that you cannot or will not forgive, you should fear for your soul. Saying, I cannot or will not forgive, is essentially another way of saying, I'm thinking about going to hell. Now, once again, to be clear, this is not salvation by works. Jesus is not saying you must forgive others before God will forgive you. Remember again, in the parable, the unmerciful servant was shown mercy by the king before he went after his fellow servants. Instead, what I think Jesus is teaching us is that forgiving others is not a precondition of our salvation, but it is always the byproduct. Forgiving others is not a precondition of our salvation, but it is always the byproduct. Because as a people forgiven by God's grace, we always seek to forgive the way God in Christ forgave us. Now, I'm under no illusions that what I've said today is hard in practice, is easy in practice, sorry, I understand it is hard, especially for those who have suffered brutally at the hands of others. I'm not actually going to focus on those particular scenarios, mostly, to be honest, because it'll distract you and you won't hear anything else after that. But largely because it misses the main point that Jesus is making theologically. Even our vilest offence pales in comparison with what we have done to God. And yet, still he forgives us. 
So let's move then to the next hard question. You'll see it on the right-hand side at the top. Question two, are there ever situations where I'm not required to forgive? Are there ever situations where I'm not required to forgive? I want to say today that I think actually that sometimes forgiveness is not possible. And let me give you two situations. Uh, firstly, because repentance must occur before forgiveness can be granted, if an offender refuses to ask for forgiveness, then I don't see how you can genuinely forgive them. Because repentance must be evident before forgiveness can be given, if an offender refuses to ask for forgiveness, I don't see how you can genuinely forgive them. Although, you must still be willing to forgive them if eventually they do repent. And you must be willing to forgive them if they repent and you forgive them and then they reoffend and repent. You must forgive them and they reoffend again and again and again up to 70 times, 7 times. Because if you won't, it questions not just what's going on in their heart, but what's going on in yours. Sometimes, actually, repentance is not possible. And if that's the case, forgiveness is not possible either. So, for example, if the offender is deceased and cannot repent, I don't think they can be forgiven. Although... Earnestly desiring to forgive others means, I think, praying to God and asking Him to stop you from becoming embittered, from harbouring grudges, or for nurturing anger in your heart. I think, actually, in this case, a good starting point is to pray to our Heavenly Dad that in His very great kindness, He might lessen our pain and suffering um, even if we never see justice or closure in this life. And so the final situation, even if there is repentance, and even if you have given forgiveness, sometimes reconciliation is not possible. Not in this life. Sadly, the ugliness of sin means that some things, once they're broken, they cannot be repaired again. Uh, without trivialising this in any way, I call this the Humpty Dumpty consequences of sin. Some things, once they're broken, cannot be restored. That means, I think, that we need to be careful about oversimplifying cliches, things like saying, you must forgive and forget. Actually, at times, it's wrong to pretend that nothing has happened. Because sin has consequences. And in fact, to ignore those consequences, to cover them up, that can actually make it worse. Offenders should be held to account. Justice should be done where possible. And in fact, I think we have a duty of care to prevent repeated harm being done to future victims. That is, sometimes we have to take steps to restrain future ungodliness. Well... There are some of the situations that I think highlight that this is not straightforward. And so I come then to the third tricky question that I want to uh, confront. That's number three there on your handout. What would help us to earnestly desire to forgive others? What would help us to earnestly desire to forgive others? 
And I want to ask this question particularly because to state the obvious, none of us are God, so none of us love or forgive in the way in which He does. He is perfect and we are not. So what does it mean for us to want to earnestly desire to forgive others? Well, a few things there on your handout. Three suggestions, in fact, let me run through each of them. Firstly, what would help us to earnestly desire to forgive others? Firstly, remember that God sees what's going on in His world. Remember that God sees what's going on in His world. This is not the only reason, but I think it's the most basic reason. It's what we see in the parable in Matthew 18. See, in the parable, the king knows what's going on in his kingdom. So the unmerciful servant, he will not get away with what he has done. This is a somber and serious warning for us to hear. I think too often we ignore this. God knows what's taking place in our world and in our hearts. It's actually the reason why when, as we've just done today, we celebrate communion and we remember what God has done for us, it is right for us to examine our own hearts first and to see if, in many ways, we are not earnestly desiring to forgive others the way that God has forgiven us. Actually, uh, according to the prayer book, which is the structure of the services that we use here, um, an exhortation is meant to be read the week before communion for us to consider before we come to communion in case there are reasons why we need to forgive others before we are reminded of God's forgiveness of us. And we've not done that this week for a number of reasons, but I've printed that exhortation in front of you and I'm going to read it out now because it's not too late if we need to deal with such matters. Follow along with me. The way to prepare yourselves is to examine your lives by the rule of God's commandments. And whether you see, wherever you see you have offended in will, word or action, there to repent and confess your sin to God with full purpose and amendment of life. And if you think that you have injured not only God, but also your neighbour, you must ask their forgiveness as well, and make good, to the full extent of your ability, any injury or wrong that he has suffered at your hands. You must likewise forgive others who have injured you, if you desire God to forgive your offences. For if you receive the Holy Communion without God's forgiveness, you only increase the judgment under which you already stand. So then, should any of you be a blasphemer of God, a hinderer of His Word, an adulterer, or be in malice or envy or in any other serious offence, repent of your sin, or else do not come to that holy table. As is always the case in this church, matters between you and God are between you and God. But if you need to come and speak to any of the pastoral staff afterwards to reflect on praying these matters, please do so. What would help us to earnestly desire to forgive others? Firstly, remember that God sees what's going on in His world. Secondly, on your handout, understand that God helps us become more forgiving by allowing us to be wronged. God helps us become more forgiving by allowing us to be wronged. See, I'm sure like you, like me, have sometimes wondered, why doesn't God just click His fingers and transform me overnight so that I am, by nature, a more forgiving person? Wouldn't that be easier and better? Well, I don't know the answer as to why He doesn't. But what I do know is that God uses our circumstances to make us more like Christ. 
God uses our circumstances to make us more like Christ. So, for example, if you pray, God, help me be more patient, He will probably let you get more frustrated. If you're someone who struggles with greed, with greed, God will probably relieve you, with your, relieve you of your possessions. This came home to me a little while ago, a couple of years ago, I am, actually, I, am, I rang up an aunt of mine who lives in Sydney because I was going up for a short stay and I needed to borrow a car and didn't know anyone else who had one available, but I knew she was going to be out of town. And so I, um, I sent her an email and asked if I could borrow her car because she's a wonderfully generous and godly woman, a great example, actually, uh, of Christian maturity. So I sent her this email, and unsurprisingly, normally she replies within about five minutes, but I didn't hear from her for about a week, until she rings me up and says, uh, now, Jeff, I got your request to borrow my car, and uh, I thought about it, and I know that I should, but I've just bought a new car. <laughs> and she said, so I've been sitting there, and I've been wrestling with this for the last week. The funny thing was, I just went to the shops this morning, and whilst I was there, someone pushed a trolley into the car, and it doesn't look so new anymore. understand that the way God helps us become more forgiving is to allow us to be wronged. I'll put a quote there for you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his magnificent book on the life in church called Life Together. Um, I've referred to this before, but it's so relevant that I've repeated it here. Look at what he says. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother? with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Well, as you know, Christians are always accused of being different, of not fitting in, of standing out, of not being part of this world. I want to say... Wouldn't it be amazing if this is how our church family stood out, if this is what we were known for? As being a people who forgive, even at great personal cost. Because as you know, the world around us is so intolerant. I get, in the end, families are not perfect, but to use the metaphor, on the whole... Families forgive in the way in which strangers and acquaintances never will. Well, sometimes people ask, how do you know if you're making any progress in this area? How do you know if you're becoming a person who earnestly desires to forgive more and more? Uh, there are, again, no simple answers, but here's one suggestion. If you're feeling brave and courageous, ask those around you, perhaps those who live with you, if they sense that you're becoming a person who really does earnestly desire to forgive, even when it's hard. And if you want to know what that looks like in practice, well, uh, here are some suggestions that I came across this week about what it means for Christians to genuinely forgive. It means that when a Christian forgives someone, they make these kinds of promises. They say, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident up again and use it against you. And a Christian who is forgiven, they promise, I will not talk to others about what you have done either. What would help us to earnestly desire to forgive others? 
Remember that God sees what's going on in his world. Understand that he allows us to become, helps us become more forgiving by allowing us to be wronged. Thirdly and finally, better realise what it cost God to forgive us our sins. Better realise what it cost God to forgive us our sins. And this is the reason why we had that second very short reading from Matthew 26. In preparing for today, I came across a number of incredibly moving and powerful stories about Christians who have forgiven the most incredibly heinous crimes committed against them. And I thought about sharing some of them as examples, but in the end I decided I wouldn't. For two reasons. One is because once I do, you'll remember them more than anything else that I've said. But the main reason is because we already have the best example available, the best example of forgiveness at almost incomprehensible cost. We have that example, and that's what I do want us to remember and dwell on in this week ahead. Because it is more powerful, more perfect, more compelling, more inspiring in every possible way. That example, what it cost God to forgive us our sins. It cost him the death of his one and only son. That's what we've seen today in communion. In communion, we're reminded once again that Christ's blood was poured out so ours need not be. We see that his body was broken so that we might be made whole. I want to say to you, you will never pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You will never pray that prayer unless you see that, firstly, our sins are greater, so all of us need to ask for his forgiveness. And secondly, that in Jesus at the cross, God's mercy is more. That's the only thing that stops us from descending into despair. I said at the start of this talk that this is a hard topic for us to grapple with. My prayer is that ultimately what we better see are the wonders of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness because that's the only thing that will ever change us. My prayer is that we might go deeper into the glories of Calvary. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some words from a song, then I'm going to pause and give us a few minutes of quiet personal reflection. You'll see there's a box on your page, what I've learnt and my response, before I come back and close for us in prayer. Lord, you're calling me to come and behold the wondrous cross to explore the depths of grace that came to me at such a cost, where your boundless love conquered my boundless sin and mercy's arms were opened wide. My heart is filled with a thousand songs proclaiming the glories of Calvary. With every breath, Lord, how I, how I long to sing of Jesus who died for me. Lord, Take me deeper into the glories of Calvary.